Thank you, Wine Community Group. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to once again thank this church body and all those that participated in last week's worship service of Hang of the Greens. Got a lot of positive feedback and it went better than I expected it would. Everybody just fell right into place and, and uh, the Lord really blessed and I believe God was honored. So um, we're thinking about uh, utilizing that as a worship service either annually or biannually because it went so well and we had such positive feedback. But the important thing is that I think it touched our hearts because God was glorified as we as we uh, bring the beauty of creation and decorations and just glorify God with it and point to Christ with it. So I thought about as I walked into the sanctuary this morning and once again admiring the decorations, it just it really um, drove the point home that Christmas is about Christ and that we can enjoy its beauty, enjoy the lights, enjoy the gift giving and the celebration and the festivities. Uh, but the reason that we celebrate Christmas with these particular colors is meaningful. Yeah, they're, they're, the green represents something. The red represents something. The white represents something. And it all points to Christ symbolically and who he is and what he has done for us. And so I think as believers, we can... We can just celebrate beauty and decorations and this season even more where it hits our hearts. So I appreciate that. And we're going to continue to celebrate the birth of Christ this month. This week, Friday night at 630, we have the Christmas open house as we celebrate the gifts of God to us through fellowshipping with one another. Uh, the, we'll, we'll worship him with Christmas carols. And, of course, receive our delicious daily bread and then some at the open house. And then on the 17th, our youth and I think a few adults that think they're youth are going to um, help lead us or they're going to present a Christmas play on the 17th for part of our service. So we're looking forward to celebrating Christ in that way. And then, of course, on the 24th, we'll meet for our regular Worship service, but that's Christmas Eve. So we'll have a, a Christmas message there and um, a guest or maybe a guest worship team. Some guest folks to lead us in worship that day is on the horizon. So we're just really grateful for the for God's gift of God's son here at New Covenant Fellowship. And we're going to celebrate that all month. And that son that was born and in the manger grew, as we know, in Matthew 6 and began his ministry as a young man. And one of the things that he brought to us or brought to the world is this teaching on how to pray. And so we have been looking at the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, though, it has been with us for centuries. It's, it's an ancient prayer. It's an important prayer. It is... Um, it hasn't faded really even from interest or the headlines. As a matter of fact, it made the headlines just this week. And it's estimated that approximately 2.2 billion people around the world pray the Lord's Prayer either uh, at least weekly, if not daily. And it also made, made the headlines this week because um, Pope Francis is... Entertaining the idea or, or wanting to change one phrase in this prayer. Um, and so, you know, is that 
is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is this change? Is it is it theologically correct or incorrect? Is it okay for us to change the wording in the prayer that we have prayed for so long? Well, I have opinions on that, and I'm not going to share them with you until we get to that point um, in our Lord's Prayer. Uh, is it okay? So, but we'll get a little a little idea perhaps as we look at our passage this morning. Uh, it, the Lord's Prayer starts out very spiritually uplifting. We got, Jesus has us in our prayer life to just begin by focusing on God, and we're, and we are hallowing His name. We're saying you're holy and and bring your holiness into my life, into this world. And we're asking and acknowledging his kingdom and asking that his kingdom would come here into this world and then into our lives. And then it gets a little more practical in asking for our daily bread. But it's okay to do that because Jesus is telling, yes, you we understand from heaven's perspective, you need sustenance on earth. And it's okay to ask your good heavenly father for that. And then there's something else that is is a need and, and perhaps even a daily need because of the way it's written. When we say, give us this day our daily bread and what? What is something else that heaven recognizes that we may need possibly and probably, at least in my life, most assuredly on a daily basis? And that's in verse 12. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And that is. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I'm just going to look at the first half of that verse this morning, and it will be in January where we will resume this prayer. Forgive us our debts. So we're asking God to forgive us our debts. Now, the... the, We learned or most people have learned the Lord's Prayer and it says trespasses there. Is it okay to change it? Who changed it? Who decides what words are used? Well, my version says debts. What's the difference? Verse 14, my version says trespasses. Well, it's two different words and they're similar, but there is a difference. And the word for trespass, as it does in our day, means There are boundaries that have been set and we're not allowed to cross them. And so the idea is, you know, we even have no trespassing signs and they're they're legal signs. It's helpful to have that if you don't want anybody on your property or sharing in your possessions, you you let it known. Here's the rule. Here's the law. No trespassing. And um, if you trespass, you can be taken to court. Can be convicted of a crime. So the idea behind trespassing is that there are established boundaries, and that's true. We can, we most certainly do trespass all over God's boundaries. He sets them, and we're rebels, and we say, uh, "Is that the line I'm not supposed to cross?" And we just cross right over it. Oh, I'm not supposed to think this way or do this, and we just do it. But the, there's a difference here between that and debt. Debt brings a little more to the table in that I can trespass in this world or in this county or on this land, say the Liverman's land, no trespassing. I can get on there and probably get off and nobody ever knows it. So I never, I, I know I don't go to court. I don't get caught and there's no harm done. 
But in the kingdom of God, when we trespass, there's something else that takes place, and that is accumulation of debt. Because God sees all things. You don't get away with anything. Not a single motive of the heart. Everything is noticed by God. So not only do we trespass, but we don't get off of that property or that transgression without owing God a debt. So we really are asking God to forgive us of something specific, and that is the transgressions that have resulted in an accumulation of debt. That's what we're praying when we pray this prayer. We're asking God to forgive us of those. So if every sin, if every transgression is an accumulation of debt, you know, cha-ching, 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 that's recorded, that's recorded, that's recorded, you owe me for that, you owe me for that, then how much do we owe God? How much debt have we accumulated at any given time or throughout our lives or throughout a day, throughout an hour? How much debt? Well, one thing Americans know is debt. I mean, debt has become a part of the, our American culture. I don't know that there, there's scarcely an American family alive that has escaped it from one level or the next. Not that all debt is bad, but we have certainly taken advantage of this idea of debt and particularly um, financial. We used to be the, the land of good and plenty and prosperity, and now we are a land of people that owe a lot of money, including our national Government. So there are more Americans in financial debt than ever before. And I did a little, just a quick little research yesterday. We like to spend more than we have. We like to spend what is not ours on a personal level and on a national level. Now, on a national level, we are $20 trillion in debt. Our government owes. Our politicians, our government, the people we appoint or the people who are assigned, the whole establishment has spent $20 trillion more than they have. So that's a debt. On a personal level, the average um, American household, on average, owes approximately $16,000 in credit card debt. Uh, the average American household owes approximately thirty, twenty nine thousand in automo- automobile debt, and approximately fifty thousand dollars in student loans, and uh, approximately one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in mortgage debt. Now, this is an average American household. Now, not all debt is bad, and there's such a thing as working debt and so forth, and and there's debt that you actually can manage. So that's that's for a different time. But the point is, we know debt. And that's why you hear all the time, especially during election time, fiscal responsibility and the fiscal cliff. We're going to go over the fiscal cliff, and the idea is that we need to be warned because financially you really can get to this point of no return. Where you have spent more than you could ever possibly in your lifetime make up for. So there's a warning there. And then what happens, uh, another popular thing in our culture of debt, that is a ray of hope for many is what we might call consolidation with financial consultation. And that's where you sit down with somebody and they want to 
They're going to ask you some questions and they try to get all of your debts and make it manageable to you again so that they can all become one payment that you actually have maybe hope of paying off. But the first thing that they're going to ask you in order to come up with a plan to see if it's even possible is I need to know everything you owe. What do you owe on this? What do you owe on this? What do you owe on that? What do you owe on that? How much you owe on Christmas? You know, you spent money on gifts that you didn't have. I need to know every debt because in order to come up with a conceivable plan to give hope, we just have to know what we got to work with. So that's really one of the first questions that you would be asked in that situation. How much do you owe? Then we can determine if it's possible for you to pay it off and what course of action. Well, when we think about this in in terms of morality, in terms of God's commandments in our relationship with him, how much do I personally or how much do we corporately owe God for the way we are living our lives, for the sins of omission, for the sins of commission? If I were to ask you, if you were to ask me, how much do you owe God, Pastor Paul? I would have to conclude, I owe God everything. I just owe him everything. And there's a few different reasons that we would all have to conclude that. One is, by design, we are literally created and brought into this world to give God glory. That's the purpose for our design. To be worshipers and to worship and live in such a way that gives God glory. And so I owe him my life because without God, I wouldn't have life. I owe him my breath. Without God, I would not have breath. I owe him every gift and talent that I possess because everything that I have ultimately has come from God directly or indirectly. He's the sovereign Lord. I owe him my obedience because he reigns and rules over all things. He's the king. He's the ultimate one, the greatest one, who is worthy of all of his creatures, praise, honor, and glory. So I I owe him my obedience, and he absolutely deserves it. The problem is that from every conceivable angle, humanity fails at this task. We do not give God the glory he deserves. And we do not obey the Lord and the commandments that he gives us. And here's, if you want to worship me and live worthy of me, here's how you do it. And in essence, we say thanks, but no thanks. We do not worship him, devote ourselves to him, obey his rules. We wind up sitting on the throne ourselves, coming up with our own lifestyle, our own rules, what we think we deserve or don't deserve. We give ourselves permission. We become our own judge of what's right and wrong. And we live according to how our heart wants to live. So we usurp that. And because of that, we are therefore guilty and accumulate debt before Almighty God. Transgression and sin. We come into the world, in fact, as sinners with a sin nature. Romans 519 says through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. And that's what we would call theologically original sin. It's original sin. So we are born with a sinful nature. Come into the world as sinners. You don't have to be um, trained 
to know how to do evil. It comes natural. If you have kids, you will know that. As cute and precious as they are, they are not as innocent as we might think or like them to be. Adam, as the first human, when he sinned, brought sin into the whole entire race, the whole world. So by our very nature, before we ever did anything, we are guilty before God and owe him just for that. But then you have what they call actual sin, and that's when we act on our sin nature. So you might say, well, it's not fair that I inherited Adam's sin. Okay. But have you ever committed a sin of your own personally without Adam ever being around? Yes, we all have done that. So that argument doesn't last very long because we're acting on our nature. We want to sin. Nobody makes us sin. Bottom line, we can be tempted and coerced and you know, enticed, but we make that decision. We weigh God's laws. And then we weigh the desire of our heart. And we choose very frequently to do what we want to do in opposition to how God would have us to live. So that is actual sin. And our, every time we sin in that way, we're just accumulating debt. It's, it's, for, uh, it's for secret sins that nobody knows about except for God. It's for private sins. Um, it's, it's for deliberate sins and even sins done in ignorance. We're so sinful and sometimes so cold to holiness that we sin and don't even realize we did it. And there were sacrifices in the Old Testament. God says, you know, you offer this sacrifice for these sins, the sacrifice for these sins. You offer this sacrifice for the sins that you've accumulated and you didn't even know you sinned against me. Sins of ignorance, but they're still sin. So our debt accumulates every time we break a Ten Commandment. And we looked at the Ten Commandments. And Jesus in his teaching before the Lord's Prayer is, is showing us what the Ten Commandments really need. It's not just about murder. It's about don't even get angry. How do you view humanity? Have you ever been angry at someone or angry at God because you didn't get your own way? There's a violation. And not just committing adultery, but lusting. Has your heart ever lusted? Or have you ever coveted? Have you seen somebody might get something for Christmas and you really want it? And you didn't get it. And you're upset with that. And your heart wants it and is trying to think of ways perhaps I can manipulate the world and get what I want. That's covetousness. And this kind of thinking goes on all the time in humanity and in our own hearts and minds because we are sinners against God and we have that nature. So we've we've sinned in about every conceivable way to one degree or another that there is to sin. How morally bankrupt are we? A Dutch theologian Herman Witsius says we are chargeable with debts of every description Original, imputed, inherent, actual debts, debts of omission, commission, of ignorance, infirmary, and deliberate wickedness without limits and without number. So just 
as someone might be filthy rich with money, there is a sense in which we are filthy rich in sin. If you look at our lives in light of what Scripture has to say, not how we think we are, but in light of what Scripture has to say about man and his thoughts and his hearts, and look at our history, we are filthy rich in sin. We absolutely love it. We cherish it. We struggle with it. But this prayer says, forgive us of our debts. Debts, plural. That means not only do I need to ask forgiveness for my sin, but I need to. It's a, it's a corporate thing sometimes. We need to ask forgiveness for our sins. Because not only have I failed God, but we have failed God. The church has failed God. I mean, how many times when God called for unity for things, have we been disunified? How many times when God calls for theological integrity, have we believed and chased after false teaching? How many times have we forsaken the church and forsaken to invest in it, forsaken to tithe in it? You know, how, how much do we owe God in tithe? How much do we, how many prayers should we have prayed and we didn't? How many words of kindness or encouragement should we have spoken to one another based on God's word and we didn't? I mean, you, you can just, how many areas have we failed him? Not just individually, but corporately. This is our world. This is the life we live. And God, Jesus, God's son, is encouraging us how to deal with this. Teaching us what do we do with all of this accumulation of debt. Well, we ask forgiveness. Because when you sit down, if we're willing to think about it, and it can be overwhelming and exhausting to even try to think about every sin we ever committed... But when we add it all up and accumulate it, we'll realize it's way more than we can ever pay. And it's eternal debt. And it's it's debt that is deserving of the just wrath of God. A debt of divine justice. So why would Jesus teach us to pray for forgiveness every day? I think for beginners, it's to make us aware... That when we pray, when we address our Heavenly Father, we need to realize that we are coming before Him with guilt. That we're coming before Him with debt. And that needs to be acknowledged and not just swept under the rug. That we're we're agreeing that we have transgressed. Is that a part of our Daily lives, is that something that we think about on a daily basis? Is how we have dishonored the Lord with our lives? And have we come to grips with it to the point where we ask forgiveness for it? Staying not so sensitive that all we do is beat ourselves up over it, but sensitive enough to acknowledge that that was a transgression. Forgive me, Lord. So Christ is bringing that to our Attention. And the idea is that we owe more than we could ever, ever pay. So then what's the plan? Just as our financial advisors would say, let's look at all of your debt and let's try to chip away at it. I think if you, you take your, uh, your smallest debt first, take this credit card first and let's pay that all first there. That's a victory. Then plan B and plan C and so forth. 
How can we manage this debt? Well, if we look at all of the debt that we accumulated, what kind of plan can we possibly come up with to pay it off? Is there such a plan? Well, I think the human plan is this. Well, I've done a lot of evil in my life. But based on my calculations, if I just start doing good right now and and put a lot of that sin behind me and just start doing good, I'm going to eventually I'm going to balance these scales out and wipe that debt away. With good deeds. So for every bad deed, I'll do a good deed. And then and God, right? Then you can't hold anything against me for all the good. I remember um, when I was under heavy conviction, right before my salvation, I had those thoughts. But for me, it wasn't, you know, I think I can actually do this. I think I can, I can change my life and work it out. The reason I came to Christ is because I came to the decision that, even though I was only like barely 19, late 18, early 19 years old, I had already realized I had done enough sin in my lifetime that there's, the rest of my life would not ever make up for it. There's just not enough good to make up for this kind of bad. And that's one of the things that drove me to the cross. So can we come up with this payment plan of goodness and good deeds? Because our flesh will want to do that. Our flesh will want to to level the scales with our good works. What does the Bible call that? Works righteousness. And that's not an option for us. Why is that not an option? Because our idea of holiness and good works is not quite the same as God's. Our idea of, okay, we're settled with our debt. is not quite the same as God's. When you have a sin nature and you're a wicked person, Scripture says... And you do good things. Does, did you just attain the level of righteousness? No. Because scripture says our goodness. If, if you want to look at it in the big picture. As much as we'd like to pat ourselves on the back. Our goodness is as filthy rags. To God. Because really what we are. Without a changed heart. That only Christ can bring about. Is we're just. Adding more evil to it because our righteousness isn't really righteous when you have a sin nature. You know, a little a little bit of a, a little bit of dog do in the in the chocolate chip Christmas cookies is still, you know, not something you really want to eat. Right. So it doesn't work that way. The pray this prayer, really. Is to know and acknowledge before God that forgiveness is not something that I can work for or earn. That the plan of the Bible is not for you to change your life and work off your debt of sin with good works. How, how, then how do you possibly come out from under this accumulation of divine justice and debt? The, the, the plan is you ask your heavenly father... For forgiveness of that debt. You don't work it off. It's, it's forgiven off. If there's such a thing. It's, it's asked for. It's, it's asking for the relief of the burden of debt. Is that a possible plan? Could God possibly be so gracious and merciful that that's even an option? Yeah, it's the only option. It's the only possibility for humanity or individuals to come out 
from under the debt that they owe. It's not working at all. It's pleading for God's mercy. Because our, our, our souls have been tarnished. What can we possibly give him that he would accept? If my righteousness is not enough, what are my other options? Could I possibly find someone that is a lot more righteous than I am? How about the saints? Should I kind of take what little bit of righteousness I have and, and accumulate their righteousness and favor before God? And will that get me into heaven? Will that balance the scales? You know, Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or the saints of old? Can I take the righteousness of others? Can we add it all up? It doesn't work. Because even theirs is tarnished. Psalm 49, 7 through 8 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. It's kind of like a, a bringing a bankrupt person to court with you to try to help pay your debts. We can selflessly die for one another, which is is an admirable thing, but we cannot ransom one another from spiritual debt. Only one can do that. So where does that leave us? What do we do? Well, we do what the prodigal son did. We do what Jesus teaches us elsewhere in the Bible. And we read where the prodigal son had so much. He had a, a loving family, a great home. A place to live. He had jobs and responsibilities to do. But that wasn't enough for him. And he squandered it. He takes his inheritance early. He spends it. He's bankrupt. He's desperate. He's so desperate and so bankrupt that he goes job hunting. And the best he can do is, is feeding slop to pigs. And he's so desperate and hungry that even that slop looks good to him. On his own efforts, he can't dig himself out. He can't bail himself out. He tried. He didn't have it in him. So what does he do? What is his plan? His plan is to go back to the Father. Go back where it was good. And so he says in Luke 15, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's his plan to, to restore his life. To go ask forgiveness. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Make me like one of your hired men. So maybe dad will find it in his heart to just take me back. Mercy. It's on the terms of mercy. Maybe he'll hire me and I can kind of work at the bottom and my work, work my way back up. What, what does the father do? Sees the son from a distance. Doesn't give him a job or a task list. Welcome back. Get to work. You've got a lot of catching up to do. He runs to the son. And embraces him and welcomes him back home into the family with no strings attached. It's on the basis of mercy, on the basis, basis of forgiveness. It's more than the son ever could ever, ever hope for. Because that's his father. The son was still rehearsing his confession. How can I make the words perfect to really touch dad's heart? Dad was already on the way to embrace him. And verse 20 says, while he was still long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And this is somebody who just 
the fame, the, the family reputation squandered all the hard-earned money that the father had worked for to make his son's life a blessing. And he throws his arms around him. There's no works in that. It's love and it's mercy. So the plan to work off the debt is that there is no plan. It's forgiveness. It's welcome. What does forgiveness mean? To let go without a sense of guilt. Or punishment or obligation. So you let go without a sense of guilt, punishment, or obligation. That's what true forgiveness is. Now, we, we want to learn. That's our goal. Sometimes we'll forgive, but there's still a little obligation. We're still holding something back. Or there's still an expectation. Or there's still some punishment involved. Cold shoulder, whatever. But this is the kind of forgiveness that God So there were no paybacks. It was a humble confession. A humble confession is the only hope we have for being forgiven by God. That contrite heart that acknowledges who he is, who we are, where we have failed. And when we acknowledge that and confess humbly, and all we can do is ask for, for forgiveness... That's the plan. And because we already know the Father's character of love, grace, and mercy, we can pray that prayer with great hope and expectation. Because God is a God that speaks and fulfills promises. And He tells broken humanity that when you confess your sin, you come to me with that humble confession, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9 Psalm 103, 10 through 14 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins. Hmm. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Don't go to God with a payment plan. Just bring your humility. Bring your broken heart. Just bring the truth. Of a life of transgression. Bring your repentance. No need to talk about interest fees. How much to owe you. How much to owe you in interest. Or uh, how many years in purgatory will it take to pay the rest of this debt. Or how many saints and their righteousness. It's a free gift of grace. Can't do anything to earn it. A free gift of grace. That pays off our debts through Christ. And it's something that we freely, joyfully, and gratefully receive. We owe more than we can pay. How can he possibly forgive us? Does he take all this moral trash, all this immorality and filth and sweep it under heaven's rug so it's out of his sight? No, the debt is paid justly. So where does all that wrath go? All the cha-ching, 
for not just my sin, but yours. It's placed on God's Son, Jesus Christ. He came to take and pay the penalty of that debt. It's not just swept under the rug. It's forgiven justly because it's paid for. The cross is God's depository. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Canceled the written code. With its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The written code, the the ancient idea behind that or the, the context behind that, people would understand what that meant in that day. It's a modern day equivalent of the IOU is exactly what it is. Because, yeah, back in that day, people owed money, too, as well. There were debts. And the IOU Christ took and nailed it. Where? To the cross. And what they did in that culture, I'm told, is that there really was such a thing as a certificate of debt, just like we would have today. And when that that IOU or certificate of debt was paid, the person who, the lender, would take it and drive a nail through it as proof that this debt is no longer Over you, you have paid it in full. And so the cross, just with the nailing of Christ, the cross paints this picture of the debt of man being nailed through as Jesus is nailed to the cross. It is paid in full. Colossians, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, it no longer stands against us. That's why we have so many hymns about it, like, It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Her debt was crucified with Christ, blotted out, wiped away because of God's grace and God's Mercy. It's a supernatural thing that he has done for us. Has to be paid off. We cannot do it. And Christ alone can pay our debt. Romans 5.18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And that was by Christ, Hebrews tells us, without The shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness. It's not atoned for. Christ shed his blood for our sin. So how how can we wrap all this up? Especially if we are believers. Now, if we're not believers, what the gospel is inviting us to do, what Christ is inviting us to do, is to come And offer to him our humble confession of repentance. And ask for the free gift of forgiveness. The free gift of salvation. Of grace and mercy. But for those that are already saved. How do we make sense of this asking forgiveness so frequently. When we're told that when Christ paid the debt. It's paid past, present and future. When I was in Bible college I had some friends that. Uh, you know, we're, we're all trying to learn things and throw different ideas around. And 
I would imagine that they've changed their position by now. But I had a few friends that tried to convince me that you should you don't have to ask God forgiveness anymore because when he died on the cross, that was it. He forgave all your sins. It's a done deal. So we don't have to even ask him anymore. But then why do you have Jesus encouraging us to pray for forgiveness? And he is talking to his disciples who have already been saved. Well, for one reason, we do it because Jesus teaches us to do it. But the other reason we do it is because we continue to sin, even though Christ has forgiven us of our sins that we haven't even committed yet. But what it gets down to is this relational aspect to it. But what do you do with your sin? So if you go home and you do something really grievous to the Lord, where do you take it? What do you do with it? You know something isn't right, right? It's a relational breach. You ask his forgiveness for it. It's what the Puritans called a renewal of repentance. And so what you're doing is you're taking the storehouse of grace that, that Christ has given us and you're applying it freshly to your sin. You applied it to your, your sin and your prayer of salvation. And you receive the grace. And we are applying it freshly to whatever sin that we commit on a daily basis. So it's a, what they call a renewal of repentance. It's a fresh application. We still have to acknowledge it. We can't just ignore it. But what do we do with it? We confess it. And we ask God to freshly apply his grace and bring repentance and change into our hearts. So, yeah, we need to continue in order to be relationally connected with God, just like we are on a human level. We can't ignore our sins and act as if nothing ever happened based on forgiveness of the past. So it's not another salvation experience. It's a fresh application of God's grace. Where we are daily pardoned and relationally restored. The amazing thing in all of this, I think, is that the person that was offended the most by our sin is the one who is the most forgiving. The most willing to pay the penalty for our sins. So... As we think about this prayer and apply it to our lives, a Christian discipline is humility. And a Christian discipline is confession. The way we get to heaven really is on our knees, humbly, not by working our way there arrogantly, but by realizing that when we come before God, even today, even this morning, as, as beautiful as he is and, and as Wonderful, the wonderful job he is doing of restoring our lives and where we are being sanctified. Our relationship with him is outside of Christ, guilty sinners. And so we stay humble before him. That's how we live the Christian life on the basis of grace and grace alone. The five solas. As we celebrate the 500th year of the Reformation. It's not works. It's grace in grace alone, by Christ, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.